Well, good morning. It's always a, a pleasure to be introduced as somebody's buddy. Um, but I am so uh, thankful to be here to uh, preach with you guys uh, this morning. So I want to uh, start off uh, going into a quick time of prayer, and then we'll get going. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Jesus, Lord of all creation, you are truly worthy of our praise. You took our broken hearts and you made them whole. You rescued us from death and you bring us into new life. You make promises to us and love and grace and you keep them. Lord, direct your spirit into this room, into this place of worship, into our hearts, our minds, and our bodies. May this time in your word be glorifying to you in your name. And will you use this to grow us in our capacity to know you? May my words fall away and your words be lifted up. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are and for those that told me about you. Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, you will see uh, me and a few of the other B-team members over the next couple of weeks because Ross has gotten uh, the opportunity to go on a just a mini sabbatical, so he won't be here over the next couple of weeks. So I'm sorry you're stuck with people like myself, Sean, and Dan, um, but Ross will be back in a few weeks uh, to continue on, but it's a pleasure to be here with you all. And I wanted to start this morning uh, with a renowned intellectual, a quote from him, someone that when we think of this man, we think, boy, that is a smart person. And I'm, of course, speaking of Iggy Pop, um, the rock star. <laughs> And uh, he wrote this wonderful essay. This is going to surprise you. He wrote this wonderful essay back in the early 90s about his love for Edward Gibbon's classic, The Decline and the Fall of the Roman Empire. And he wrote this for an academic journal in Ireland. I'm not kidding. You should go look it up. It's incredibly well thought out. And this is a massive work that he wrote about uh, it's a high, it's a six-volume uh, book about the Roman Empire. It is a standard in uh, classrooms that teach about that. And it completely captivated Iggy Pop, which is a sentence I never thought would be uttered from the pulpit. <laughs> and in this essay, he offers several reasons for why he was enamored with it. But the one that's always stuck with me uh, is this one, and this is the first one. It says, I feel great comfort and relief knowing that there were others who lived and died and thought and fought so long ago. I feel less tyrannized by the present day. Iggy Pop. <laughs> this is a wonderful bit of reflection. And whether he knows it or not, he has absolutely identified a crucial idea that we as Christians and really humanity has to wrestle with. And it's this. There's something Fundamental wrong, fundamentally wrong with the world. The problems that we see today didn't just start today. They've been with us for a really, really long time. If you weren't here last week, we have been continuing on in this study of the book of Acts, and Ross preached on chapter 7, the entirety of chapter 7, and Acts has been a study in what this pastor, writer, Tim Mackey, 
calls the Jesus Movement. And the Jesus Movement has been located primarily within Jerusalem, and it's been pretty much targeting the Jewish population of Jerusalem. But that's going to change after the events of what Ross covered last week. Stephen, a deacon and a leader in this early church, was brought before the high council of the Jewish leaders on charges of blasphemy. And during Stephen's defense, he proceeds to give a sermon highlighting various stories of Israel's past, building to this heated moment in Acts 7, 51 through 53. And here that Stephen says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so did you. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, one whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This, of course, would lead to Stephen's martyrdom and also the spread of the gospel to the farthest ends of the world. William Williamon greatest name I've ever heard, is an academic and a scholar, and he brings some light to why Stephen and the Jewish council found themselves in such a heightened scene. And it's this, he says, it's the speech of a bitter family feud over who is really heir to the family fortune. This is helpful because it underlines the tension of the scene, but it does leave us wondering what is the source of this bitterness? You know, so since most of us in here are Gentiles, Gentile Christians, we do know this big picture one, and it's appropriate that the kids are in here because it's traditionally, you know, the, the Sunday school answer, which is, oh, it's Jesus. That's where the tension lies. Jesus as the Messiah. But as we are newly adopted members into this family of God, we lack a lot of the context for the root of the problem. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. I want to use this particularly strange and memorable accusation of the Jewish leaders, having uncircumcised hearts and ears. I don't know about you, but that's not really a common phrase that I use when I'm upset or angry, sitting in traffic. Ah, you've got uncircumcised ears. I might want to try it, especially on the tollway, uh, see if that will lead to anything. What in the world does that even mean? So to find out, we need to take a deep look at Scripture. Now we're going to go to some deep and to some wide places of thought this morning. So I'm not going to be able to linger on everything that I possibly want to, mostly because you don't want to be here for six hours, although I would love to do that. That would be a lot of fun. Look, there's food right here, you know. Uh, so I've tried to condense a lot into broad strokes so that we can see and explore a different angle on a familiar theme that is represented within uh, that scene that we just pl saw played out with Stephen and the priests. I highly recommend this, though, that as you reflect on this throughout your week, that you visit the Bible Project's website. This is what uh, Ross uh, talked about last week. It is a fantastic resource, and I am so indebted to them because it helped draw out a lot of what I'm going to be preaching on this morning. So, are you ready? 
I'm going to nerd out. It's going to be incredible. I'm going to be vulnerable with you people, though. So if you kind of roll your eyes at my nerdiness, it'll hurt my feelings. All right. Promises, covenants, circumcision, and the law. <laughs> These are, yeah, woohoo. <laughs> my feelings are not hurt now. These are four major topics that are key to getting at this tension of Stephen's accusation. God's promises, the covenants between God and his people, circumcision, and the law or the Torah. Let's take a big picture view of these through kind of a narrative lens. So we're going to go all the way back to Genesis. And you can have your Bibles out. I'm going to be running like crazy. So you might get some whiplash, um, some carpal tunnel syndrome from the various page flipping. Um, but, you know, that should be fine. So in the book of Genesis, we learn about God's creation of the earth and his chosen image bearers and humans named Adam and Eve. And God pronounces a blessing onto them. And we see it in Genesis 1, 28 through 31. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and... <clears throat> over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. Tragically, humanity forfeits God's blessing. They do this through sin and rebellion, resulting in a horrible downward spiral of evil and continued brokenness. And that's really the first 11 chapters of Genesis. It's just this endless spiral. So many generations after this story, we find the beginning of a new story. It's in chapter 12 when God begins this unlikely relationship with a man named Abraham and his family. And he begins this relationship with a really surprising promise says this in uh, Genesis 12, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is really jarring because the only things that we know about Abraham was just a tiny bit of his genealogy, that his wife Sarah was barren, and that his family were going to go to Canaan, but then they found themselves in Haran, and they were like, this is good enough. Like, that's what we know about someone who's been given a gigantic promise from God. That's kind of weird. At least with Noah, we got to find out he was righteous. With Abraham, it's like his family gives up. That's what we know about him. I'd love to talk about this more, but we need to move on. And what's important to focus on is that it's God who initiates the relationship. It initiates this relationship with a really obscure figure to bring about glory and redemption. So as the years go on and as the relationship between Abraham and God deepens, God begins to formalize things. He's creating a covenant with Abraham. All right, let's briefly define what a covenant is because there's a tendency for us to confuse uh, a covenant and a contract. In 
this biblical sense, a covenant is when God makes promises and he calls on his covenantal partners to fulfill certain commitments to pursue this common goal. So we can break this down in the relationship between Abraham and God. Okay, so we have the first part. And the first part is this. This is God's part. God promises to bless Abraham, meaning that he will have a huge family that will inherit a promised piece of land in Canaan. And somehow, God will bring his blessing to all humanity through his family. All right, so that's God's part in this covenant. Then we have the second part, and this is going to be Abraham's part. And it's to trust God's promises and follow him wherever he leads. And then the third part of our covenant is this. There's a greater goal attached to this. It's that God repeats his promises to Abraham and his descendants that through this family, somehow, he's going to bring his blessing upon all nations. Again, the Bible project this is going to clarify, go deeper into some of these concepts. Definitely check it out. This covenant and several others that God will instigate with his people highlight God's character of love, compassion, justice, and grace. Covenants act throughout the entire story of the Bible as this giant flashing sign that's showing his heart for his broken world. It's the covenant with Abraham in chapter 17 that we see circumcision introduced. And so sparing the physical details, this was an, this is a better way to put it, baby. And it's this, this was an outward expression of Abraham, his family, and then later Israel. It's uh, their inward reality of their personal, intimate relationship with the creator. I'm going to say that again. It's an outward expression of Abraham, his family, and later Israel's inward reality of the personal, intimate relationship they have with the Creator. It was a visual sign of the penalty for breaking the covenant. Uh, Dr. Timothy J. Keller puts it this way, if you want a relationship with me, meaning God, you need to be circumcised as a sign to you and everyone that if you break covenant, you will be cut off completely. Cut off from others, cut off from life, cut off from me. You really will be circumcised. Abraham's family miraculously grows with the birth of his son Isaac. And Isaac has a son, and his son's name is Jacob. And Jacob has a son, and his son's name is Joseph. And with each of these descendants of Abraham, God renews, and he starts to add to his covenant. So because God chose this family and these people, and he's making this covenant with him, they're awesome people, and everything goes right no, it's terrible. They are horrible. They're horrible things. I was going to call them horrible people, but horrible people or horrible things happen through them. Just read the rest of Genesis. It is a continuation of this spiral of things that you look at and you're just like, oh my goodness. Do not look at the patriarchs as symbols of people that it's like, I'm going to just emulate everything that they did. That would be a very unwise thing to do. The rest of Genesis is filled with these stories 
of Abraham's family complete failure to maintain their side of the covenant, but each of these difficult failures shows God intervening and preserving hope. Now, as Abraham's family line grows and becomes the people known as Israel, they find themselves enslaved in Egypt. And in his mercy and compassion for his people, God rescues them out from slavery. And through miraculous means, he brings them to Mount Sinai, where several important moments occur. Here's the broad high points. One, God initiates and renews his covenant with Israel and continues to develop on the promise of salvation to all peoples that was given to Abraham. Second thing is that Israel receives the law. Okay, so the law is a pretty loaded and confusing term for us. And while there's so much to unpack about that, to talk about, we'll keep it brief with some essentials. Here are some essentials about the law. One, it's a specific code of rules and regulations that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. Okay, so that's, the, that's like the pinpointing of what it is. Second thing, the law was part of the covenant that set Israel apart as God's people. And then finally, the third thing, the law was given specifically to Israel but it rests on moral principles that are consistent with God's character. So it's kind of a, a multi-layered approach to kind of look at the law. They function as a summary of funda uh, fundamental and universal moral standards. The law does. And so it expresses the essence of what God requires of so both the covenant and the law work in harmony to make Israel into what God will call later in Exodus 19, a kingdom of priests. And that will point the purpose of this, like why a kingdom of priests? Why, why Israel? Why is God developing this relationship? It's so that they become this kingdom of priests that will point other nations and peoples goodness and to the supremacy of God. So we'll take a step back because that's a lot of really heavy concepts that have been developing in, in history for thousands of years and I just went through them in like probably five minutes. So you know, you guys are all experts now. <laughs> what I'm trying to show is that these four concepts God's promise, his covenant with his people, circumcision in the law, they all inform and they produce this beautiful tapestry of God's redemptive plan for Israel and through Israel, all of creation. We can't separate these four just like we can't separate the cross and the resurrection. We lose something when we try to isolate the others. So we see these things become the identity and the purpose of Israel. And God has promised to redeem and rescue through his chosen people. This will lead to the conquest of the promised land and the establishment of the kingdom of Israel. Yet like Abraham's family in Genesis, God's people leave a long and sad legacy of rebellion, 
and failure to hold their side of the covenantal agreement. So how does Israel fail so often in keeping the side of the covenant? Well, it can be summarized or summed up in this passage from the book of Deuteronomy. It's commonly known as the Shema. This is an incredibly important passage in Scripture. And it's this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. It's beautiful. Somebody should put that on Pinterest. You know, the word here is actually really important to the Shema. And it's this. It's because here is kind of a, a poor translation. It actually has two connotations to it. Here could be broken up in two ways. It's a part A and a part B. Part A is listen. You want to hear these things just like we would um, attribute it to it. But then that, that B side, that second side, which is so vital to understanding this, is that there's action associated with hearing. There's an obedience. So really what uh, Moses is saying is he's saying, listen, obey, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. He's calling on Israel, I'm speaking of Moses, to love and honor the covenant that they have with God and to follow all the statutes and the commands. You need to listen to these things and you need to put action behind them. Moses is encouraging the people to keep God central in all aspects of their lives. It's right here that we can start to feel that tension coming back. We're starting to get closer to it. We're starting to get closer to Stephen's frustration before the council. We've got to dig a little bit deeper before we can really get the big picture view of it. God wants us to have him as central in his people, or God wants us to, be, uh, to have him as central in his lives. He wanted that for, the king, for Israel. And yet throughout their history, we see time and time again, they're unable to do this. Instead of placing God in a central place, Israel repeatedly falls into something called idolatry. Tim Keller um, defines idols this way, and I think it's really powerful. He says, what's an idol? It's anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. It's this failure to keep God central and moving idols into that rightful place of centrality that Israel becomes stubborn. They become rebellious and hardened. They're exchanging what they believe is a good thing, like safety or their own direction. They're changing, they're making idols out of those things and putting them central in their lives and moving God off to the side. It's made them rebellious and hardened. And idols would hang over Israel's history repeatedly. It would mar the generation that was led out of slavery and continue on in further generations into the promised land and eventually into the very kingdom of Israel. It gets so bad 
that during the kingdom period, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, says this. This is Jeremiah uh, 6.10, starting in uh, the second part. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. That listen is, is interesting because it's, again, a failure of translation. This is the ESV. It doesn't connote the whole thing. That word in the Hebrew is shema. Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. They can't obey. The word of the Lord has become an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Substituting idols into God's place has drastically reduced Israel and also creation to be completely broken. Israel become, became a people that could no longer hear God's word, and even if they could, they would look on it, look down on it. They couldn't act on it. Why would they? They're so far lost. Israel loses its way so much that idols lead to the destruction of the kingdom of Israel and exile for God's people. N.T. Wright summarizes the problem pretty well. God's call of Israel to be his people, to live under his rule, was itself designed as the central move in putting the world to rights. But Israel was itself part of the problem, being composed of sinful human beings. Israel was locked into this endless cycle of pain and rebellion and loss. And yet, just as he did for Abraham's family in Genesis, for Israel as slaves in Egypt and countless times throughout history, God reaffirms his promise to break the cycle and to restore and redeem Israel and all of creation. But how? It's a pretty bleak picture so far throughout Scripture. But as we see, God is planting small seeds of hope. They're mysterious. They're kind of confusing, but they're there. First, we're going to go to Ezekiel, a prophet um, who would watch the exile happen in the kingdom period. Ezekiel 36, 26 through uh, uh, 29 I will sprinkle clean water on you. This is the Lord speaking. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness. Keep in mind that phrase, what God says there. I shall be, you shall be my people, and I will be your God. God will somehow, some way, remove our dead hearts and replace them with new ones that beat and that give life. Not only that, he'll put his spirit into us. A, a recreation of the vision that we have with the creation of man. 
God breathing his spirit into the dust. He's giving, going to give us the ability to walk in his ways and to keep the covenant. And there's more in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by their hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Somehow, some way, we see God continuing um, to promise to do something that somehow, some way, we don't know how he's going to do it. And his promise is that he's going to um, wipe away our iniquity and remember our sin no more. He will ensure that we will be able to go back, as both passages say, to this, this garden mentality, this, this garden-like place that happens in Genesis 1 and 2, where he will be our God and we shall be his people meaning all those things that separate humanity from God will somehow be removed, giving us the ability to dwell in God's presence perfectly and forever. Or, to put it concisely, sin will be no more. The cycle will end. Broken, dead hearts will become new. This leaves us with great hope but also, there was a second part to that N.T. Wright quote, and it's this. How is Israel to be rescued? And how is the whole world to be put to rights? God's answer is so radical, and it's amazing. It's Jesus. It's in Jesus that we see the promise made to Abraham come to fruition. It's Jesus who kept the law perfectly, honoring the covenants of Israel. It was Jesus who, because he lived the law perfectly, he was without sin. It was Jesus, the suffering servant of Isaiah, that we read just a little while ago, that the fullness of sin and the fullness of God's rightful justice could be poured out onto him as he hung from the cross. It was Jesus who endured the ultimate circumcision. He was cut off from the giver of all life and dying the death that we deserve. And it was Jesus who, by pleasing his Father with perfect obedience to God's plan, was resurrected on the third day. It's this Jesus who, one of my favorite songs written by John Mark McMillan, sang, laid death in his grave. And in so doing, he gives us the opportunity to do the same.
I want to conclude by just asking a few questions. And I have to be honest with you, this is the hardest part for me. Because I fully recognize how broken I am. And I think that we see that humanity from the very beginning has felt that brokenness also. This is what Stephen, standing before the council of these, these Jewish leaders, these highest authorities who would know these stories that he quoted and that I went through today, they would know them. They would have memorized them. They were looking. And yet somehow they missed it. And Stephen is standing before them saying, how can you miss it? See him. Take this new heart that he is giving you. Take this new life. So my question is, where are you in this story? Are you standing with Stephen, looking at a broken world, knowing this new heart that you've received, and you can't believe that you're seeing people go past you left and right, family, friends, not taking advantage and proclaiming Jesus as king? Are you looking right at Stephen's angelic face, hearing these words and this frustration? Are you somewhere in the middle? Are you there but not fully there? I'd like to invite the band back up here because they're going to give a little bit of time for some reflection for all of us because that's what we ultimately always need is some time to sit and to reflect. What I'd like you to do is will you bow your heads with me? And I'd like you to be thinking about these things. I'd like you to ask the Lord to be honest with him about where you are, about the state of your own heart, about how it's become, it's always been hardened, that you need a new one, or maybe it's that you've forgotten with the beating of, a, of that heart that he gave you. Maybe you've forgotten its sound. Maybe you've forgotten what it means to live in this new life. In just a few moments, we will go into a time of communion. Dan will lead us. But until he comes up to lead us in this, act, this powerful remembering of the new life we're given, please take a, a, a time to sit and to reflect on these things.